Okay, so uh, first of all, Chodesh Tov, and also the Mishnah and Pirkei Avot says, always pray for the well-being of the country. So on that note, happy July 4th. And um, the dedications, dedicated today in memory of Dvora Fega Bat Shmuel, Zichrona Levracha, and Moshe Ben Shoshana, Zichrona Levracha, Yebod L'chaim Tov Maruchim, for the Fuhr Shleima of Yaakov and Penina, and Menachem Mendel Ben Sarabatya, like to add on my personal, um, Rezel Bas Miriam, and Sterna Mezani Simcha Bas Sivya. So you should all have a complete Refua Shalema. Okay, so today's title is Caviar and Marmalade. Here you have the notes if you wish. Yes. Um, caviar and Marmalade balancing our modus operandi. Okay. So, let's talk about this name. What does this name come from? Caviar and marmalade. And what does it have to do with this week's Torah portion? So, Sir Noel Pierce Coward, that was his name, is quoted for saying, wit ought to be a glorious treat like caviar, never spread it about like marmalade. What was Coward saying? What Coward was saying is that in order for things to maintain their glory, they need to be withheld. You asked me about Tzimtzum. They need to be withheld and used wisely and sparingly. For when not used as such, they lose their glory and value. You start smearing um, caviar the way you smear marmalade and it's not, it doesn't work. Okay. Hasidus explains that there are within the infrastructure of our souls. Our souls, remember God said, let us create mankind in our image and glory. So we're going to talk about the ten emanations and the reflection of the ten emanations is how our soul was uh, created. So in that image. Now, you have over here two major faculties. The two major faculties are Hod, which is glory, and Netzach, which is victory. That's actually what they're called. Now, if you think about Hod as glory and Netzach as victory, here you have the notes. If you think about them... So, Netzach victory, we soon see, is basically saying, at all costs, we must prevail. We've got to get this transmission through at all costs. So, that would be more like the marmalade, at all costs. We're not going to be skimpy on, on it. Now, on the other hand, Hod says, whoa, 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 protect the glory and value by measured constraints. You don't just uh, at all costs. If we just give things at all costs, we're going to end up losing the glory and the power. Now, on top of that, let's get practical about this. If someone is holding a gun, God forbid, to the head of your child, <clears throat> all bets are off. If he tells you, I want you in public to walk on all four, and I want you to kiss my shoe, and I want you to dance like a rooster, guess what you're going to do? You can do all the above. Guy's got a gun to your kid's head. What happens if he tells you, I want you to do all of that for $1,000? No. What's going to be your answer? No. In other words, there's a time and place for each and every way. Sometimes we have no choice. Sometimes it's at all costs. A gun to a child's head, God forbid, at all costs. We do whatever we can do. But on the other hand, under normal circumstances, there's a certain respect, a certain glory we have being in the image of God. And we don't just make ourselves crazy and do crazy stuff. You have Blanco, you want to just pass uh, some notes. So therefore, what we're going to discuss in this lecture is exactly that concept, the balance between the two, the caviar and the marmalade. And we'll explore the modern-day issue of finding the godly balance in our modus operandi. In our modus operandi, we have more than one tool in our toolbox. You can't just use one tool for every situation. Some situations require, you know, require a hammer, and others, you know, a screwdriver. You got to know what what you're dealing with, and we have to balance that out. And now, just of course, to tell you where I took this all from. This all came from. A mimer of the Rebbe, blessed memory, delivered on the Shabbat in 1965, exploring the modus operandi of Korach 
in his uprising against Moses. It is understood when we talk on the web. Okay, moving right along here. <laughs> okay, so I think the first introduction is a simple story of Korach. So who is this Korach? So let me give you a little bit of the genealogy. Korach was a first cousin of Moses. Moses' father, right? Let's go back a little more. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 children, 12 sons, not 12 children. Now, when you have child number three, Levi, which became the tribe of Levites, he had three families, three children, which broke into the three families of the tribe of Levi, Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. Now, Kahat had four children. The oldest one of those four children, his name is Amram, and he had three children. Number one, Miriam. Number two, Aaron. Number three, Moses. The next son, the next brother, that means the one, the next, the brother of Amram would be Yitzhar. Yitzhar's oldest son was Korach. Now I'm going to jump to the youngest son, whose name was Uziel, who he had a son called Elitzafan. So I told you about son number one, who had Moshe and Aaron, son number two, who had Korach as the oldest, son number four, who had Elitzafan. Why am I telling you just these names? Because Moshe Benu was the king, his brother was the high priest. Who is the next male up for any special appointment in the family? Korach, the oldest son of the next brother. The next appointment was to be prince of the tribe of Levi, the leader. God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to make Elitzafan, the son of Uziel. And all of a sudden Korach says, whoa, 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 you just jumped over me. I'm next on line. Okay? And thus he was fighting that Moshe Rabbeinu by himself was doing this. He was picking and choosing, and this wasn't from God, because God would have gone in order. I'm the next one online. Okay? That's one issue that started this fight. However, what was the exact, the exact situation? The exact situation was actually that Korach was incited by his wife. We don't know who her name is, what her name is, but she was the one that incited Korach to go to war. What happened? What happened was, if you remember, you learned in Parshish Bahaloscha the installation of the Levites. Now, if you paid attention to how the Levites were installed, it says that you have to run a razor over their entire body. They were completely hairless, a facial, head, and body hair. Then it says that Aaron the Kohen was to pick up each one and wave a tenufa, just like you do with a sacrifice. Now, all of a sudden, Korach is telling his wife that, yeah, they picked us up, they waved us, and she's saying, whoa, 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 don't you see what's going on here? He's purposely ridiculing everyone to make his own immediate family stand out. Korach was no idiot. And Korach tells his wife, you're wrong. Because Moshe was a Levi. So whatever happened to me happened to him. Hashem said, all the Levites. Moshe was a Levi. He was a Levite. Thus, he also went through it. And she said, she quoted, the Talmud says, that uh, they quotes in her name the saying of what what Shimshon said. You remember the last thing Shim, uh, Shimshon Agibar when he was tied to the poles, the pillars, and his eyes were but, and what do you say? Let me die with the yeah. So he says, so Moshe Beno said, let me die with the with the rest of the Levites. Let me be ridiculed together with them so that my family stands out by Aaron being the high priest. And anyway, I'm the king. And because of 
his wife's consistently inciting him, he eventually went to war. The Talmud says there were two women. One saved the life of her husband and one killed the life of her husband. Who is the one who saved the life? One of the people who joined Korach was On ben Pela. Pela ben On. And what happened was that when he was part of the 250 judges that joined together with Korach and Datan and Aviram. And what happened was that when they started coming to pick him up, to round up, okay, time to go to war. So he went, his wife said, what are you doing? What do you stand to gain? Korach wants to be high priest. What do you stand to gain? You're just going to back out of this. You're in a lose-lose situation. If you win, you lose. And if you lose, you lose. She said, he told his wife, what can I do? I already gave my word that I'm, I'm going to go with them. And they're coming to pick me up. She said, don't worry. You go to the back of the tent. I'll take care of it. And the Talmud tells us what she did was, you're allowed a woman, a married woman, is allowed to uncover her hair in her own home. Being that she was in the tent, she, she took off her hair covering. But she was next to the door. So when the judges came, the teammates, the 249 teammates came to pick him up, they saw her there, they right away turned around and walked away. And he was saved. Thus you have in the same story, one wife with her wisdom saves her husband's life, and another wife entices her husband, which ends up badly. Okay? Okay, so now you know basically the practical story that you're about to read this Shabbat. Okay, now I shared with you about the shaving of all the hairs of the body. I shared with you about them being lifted and waved like a, sanct like a, a sanctification of a sacrifice, of offering as they were installed. Okay, I just want to put parenthetically speaking, there's two things we know about Korach. One thing is that Korach was extremely wealthy. He was probably the wealthiest Jew. And the Talmud tells us why, because when Joseph gathered everything from the e Egypt, he put them in three hiding places, and he broke them into three, and Korach found one. That's how wealthy he was. There's another thing important to know, that the sages tell us, Korach pikach pikeach He was a smart person. Thus, we need to understand what really happened here? What was Korach thinking by rebelling against Moses? Does he not know by now that Moses does nothing of his own? If Moses appointed someone, it's because God told him. So what was Korach thinking? We need to know what the real fight was. Not in my notes here, but I just want to share with you that there was a great tzaddik called the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe said that this is the third time he's in this world. We're not talking about that long ago. And he said, this is the third time I'm in this world. One time I came as one of the sheep of Jacob, and I have a mark from where Jacob hit me. He says, the second time I was in the desert. So they asked him, when it came to Korach and Moshe's fight, what did you do? He said, I stayed quiet. I didn't take a side. He says, Rebbe, you didn't take Moses aside? And he said, you didn't hear Korach's arguments. Korach was no fool. He was no fool we're soon going to learn that his arguments were based on deep Kabbalah. Okay? Okay, now let's talk about tzitzitzit. What was the last thing we read in last week's Torah portion? The last thing we read, the last reading, was the mitzvah of tzitzit. Right? Now, the mitzvah of tzitzit, I quote to you the three verses that explain to it. Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them that they shall make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments through their generations. Right throughout their generations, that they shall affix a thread of sky blue wool, chelet, on the fringe of each corner. This shall be fringe. This shall be fringes for you. And when you see it, you will remember all the commandments of God to perform them. And you shall not wonder after your hearts and after your eyes, after which you are going astray, so that you shall remember, perform all my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. The reason why we wear these tzitzit is simply to remember all the commandments. And there's different ways, just a simple way, the simplest way to understand it is, the word tzitzit, tzadik yud, tzadik yud, tov, is the numerical value of 600. Each corner has eight strings and five knots, it's 13. 613 is the amount of the commandments. That's one way of, it's explained. Now, 
you have here just understand that tzitzit are made up of three parts there is the garment there is the white fringes and there's the blue fringe we're going to talk about that in a moment okay now okay so what are we saying here I actually made for you a little picture here you have there with the blue and without the blue so I wanted to share with you there's so many different opinions but the one thing that almost all opinions agree upon is the eight strings and the five knots but how many twirls you do in between the knots and how do you do them? Do you have an extra flip around every three? That's the Chabad way. Others don't do it. There's so many different customs, really so many. There's Yemenite, Yemenite. It is everything you want. There's different customs. But the major part of it, as we know it, is the five knots, the eight strings on each one of the four corners. Now, in the times of the Beta Megda, in the times, yeah, it was in the times of the Beta Megda, before the exile, because Rabbi Isaac Luria says in Kabbalah, that we cannot have the trelet in the times of Galut. There was a great rabbi two generations ago who felt that he found the right one and uh, the right die. But Arizal says it won't happen while we're in exile because trelet is a certain level. The blue wolves, as we're going to see soon, is a certain level of holiness that cannot exist until Mashiach comes. So it can exist during exile. But with that being said, there are those, you will see those, that they follow a certain opinion of a certain Rajin Rebbe that felt that he did find it. Now, what does this find it? The Gemara says, and Rashi quotes it, when it says in the mitzvah, I am God, Rashi has a rule. There's always a reason why God says, I am God. And basically, it breaks down to one of two things. One of three things. Two things. Number one, if it's a mitzvah that's very difficult, Hashem says, I know it's difficult, but remember who's telling you to do it. Another time it says, I am God, is if no man can know if it was done right. You should know that man doesn't know, but God knows. Now, when it comes to the blue wool, you can never know if it was done from the right thing called achilazon, or if it was from something called in the times of the Talmud, Kala Ayin. Kala Ayin was the fake Tcheles, the Zakonian. Thus he says, Ani Hashem, I will know if you used Tcheles or if you used Kala Ayin. Okay? Now this Tcheles, according to our sages, there's one opinion that says it's Allah Pam B'Shivim Shana. It only ride this, this fish. Some say it's from the squid family. By the way, just that so you know, in your notes, when you'll get the email, you can click on a little link there. You see, I have a footnote on page three. One, chilazon, link. You click on the link, you'll see the different opinions. One says from the snail, one says from the squid. And when the Rambam describes it as a fish, either way, it's extremely difficult to get. Now, on top of that, today, we are not sure what it is. Now, because the Talmud says that Hashem is very strict about using the fake one, thus we say, better use nothing than to use fake. Because Maimonides says that white without blue, the white threads without the blue threads, is the mitzvah of tzitzis too. So if you could be yoitze, if you could fulfill the mitzvah with only white, and if you use the wrong blue, you're going to be facing a harsh judgment, stay away from the blue. Thus, you have the two pictures. Most of us will stay away from the blue. Okay? But now you understand that there is the garment, has to have four corners, and it has to have the white fringes. And when we had the chilazon, there was one blue fringe on each corner. Just to understand how that worked, you took four threads. Today we have four white threads. It used to be three white and one blue. You put it through the holes, now it becomes eight. And then you use the longest one, which used to be the blue one, to do the wrapping. Okay? With that said, our sages want to know, why did Hashem set up the Torah that we should have the portion of tzitzit, and then straight from there go into Korach? The portion of tzitzit doesn't really fit into where it was. Thus our sages tell us that Korach used the tzitzit to ridicule Moses. How did he ridicule Moses? He said, tell me, 
a garment that was made completely out of the correct blue blue um, dye. The whole wool was all blue dye, the entire blue garment. Does it need tzitzit? Does it need that blue fringe or not? Moshe Benin said yes. If it's a four-cornered garment, it has to have fringes, and one of the fringes has to be blue. Moshe Rabbeinu so was ridiculed by Korach. He said, I don't understand. If you have a white garment, so one thread of blue makes it okay. Here you have an entire garment of blue. It shouldn't be okay. If one thread is enough for an entire white wool garment, then a blue wool garment should definitely be okay. If one thread of blue is enough, then an entire garment of blue doesn't need that one thread of blue. We need to understand what's going on here. I just want to share with you, just that you understand, you notice the, the reference here, fringes. Here is to our head and our body, almost like the fringes is to the garment of the talit. So there's something going on here. He's fighting whatever the here slash fringes stands for. He's fighting it from both ends. He's fighting why they removed the hair from the body. And on the other hand, he's fighting that a blue garment doesn't need a blue fringe. And they both represent the same thing, the hair and the fringe. And yet he seems to be in a paradox. Okay? We're going to understand this. Okay, now that we got the introduction straight, let's jump right into the lecture. The lecture has a couple of Kabbalistic concepts we're going to talk through. I'm going to talk about it quickly as we move along here. Number one, understanding the three columns of the Kabbalistic evolution process. Now I want you to know, I use words which kind of sound non-kosher. Evolution is a non-kosher word. So I'm going to explain what I mean by the word evolution. Okay? We're talking about the Kabbalistic evolution process. Number two, what is the deeper Kabbalistic meaning of the Kohen and the Levi? Number three, what is the difference between now and exile and then when Mashiach comes? Number four, what are the two sides of Givurah? We'll understand that in a moment. Number five, what was Korach's mistake? Like I said, man's a smart man. Why did he do this? By the way, just to throw in there what Rashi says before we get do 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 do. Rashi just says, very simple, Korach saw that from him is going to come Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet. Now, now, according to the Pasuk, it says that Shmuel was equivalent of both Moshe and Aaron together. So he said, if that's my offspring, so definitely I'll be saved. He didn't realize that he's going to die and his children will be saved. Thus, Samuel the prophet will still come out of him. Okay? Now, what is on the holy side? We have to talk about the difference in Korach's vision of the mundane side versus the holy side. Right? Here versus the tzitzit. Holy versus the mundane. And now the last thing is we're going to talk about Gimel Tamas. This coming Shabbat is the 25th yard side of the Rebbe Blessed Memory. And we're going to see how this fits into this, this uh, whole class. Okay, let's jump right into the Kabbalistic concepts. Number one, understanding the three columns of the Kabbalistic evolution process. We're now on page four. Okay. The big question is, how do we get from the infinite to the finite? How does that happen? If before creation, there was God and His name, Hayahu Ushmo Bilvad. He is infinite and His name is infinite. Another word for name is the infinite light. The infinite will, different names that they use. But the point here is that if God is infinite and His light is infinite, how do we end up with a finite world? If God is everything and everything is God, everything should be infinite. One of the issues Kabbalah has, and that's where Kabbalah comes along with the word you asked me before, Tzimtzum. So let me just explain this basically. This is my own metaphor. It's not brought down in Kabbalah, so it could be very wrong. I just want to share with you how I see it. One of, the per one of the visions I think that will help understand this is, there is the colorless sunlight, let's call it colorless, shines through a stained glass window. The stained glass window has different colored pieces of glass. So now when you stand on this side of the glass and the sunlight shining in here, 
you're going to see colorless, 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 and all of a sudden, what do you see here? You have different colors. Through the green glass became a green light. Through the red glass, so too, I'm going to use this metaphor to say, there is the infinite light. However, every Friday before Kabbalah Shabbat, before Mincha, we say of the, over there the introduction to the Zohar with the words Patach Eliyahu, Elijah opened up and said, and what do we say there? That even though you are one beyond numbers, you can have one as one, two, three. You don't even match as a number. We use the word one because we don't know what to call you. And you have created the, te, the ten tikkunim. We call them sfirot. So you have the infinite colorless, because when we talk about infinite, we think of infinite as a quantitative thing. Infinite is not quantitative any more than it's qualitative. So you have quantitative and you have qualitative. If I call God good, I just gave him a form, but it's a good form. I'm saying he's good, he's not bad. Don't call him good and don't say he's not bad. Because those are virtues that have definitions. God has no definition. Don't call him smart. Don't call him stupid. Don't call him kind. Don't call him just. All those names of God can only apply once we have this infinite, colorless, formless light shine through the system. Those ten spherot is what I refer to when I say the Kabbalistic evolution process. We had an infinite colorless light that now has 10 very distinctive descriptions, both in quantity and quality. Now, what's important for us to know is that these 10 spherot, 10 emanations, divide into three columns, right, left, center. We're going to talk about just the right and left, but just to understand this, okay? The right is kindness. Kindness means revelation. Kindness means giving. The left is called givura. The word givura means strength. In Kabbalah, we define this. I'm going to talk about, remember, one of the things we're going to talk about is the two sides of the coin of givura. But for right now, we talk about givura as the power of concealment and contraction. Thus, we have what we spoke about before, the caviar and the marmalade. Chesed is treating divinity like marmalade. At all costs, bring divinity into the world. Don't worry if they appreciate it or they don't appreciate it. They deserve it or they don't deserve it. Unimportant. God's infinite light needs to shine everywhere. And infinitely so. The other side, Givurah says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you don't give it in a way that's digestible, what are you doing? You have to make it digestible. Digestible means we have to have contractions. We have to have concealments. Thus, you have the two sides of the coin, the right and the left. By the way, just to understand, the center, which we're not going to talk about today, so it works right, left, center, right, left, center. Many of you may have seen that artwork they usually put on top of a Kabbalah book. It looks almost like a mezuzah, right, with the points. What they're really doing is wisdom, understanding, knowledge, kindness, strictness, and um, compassion. And then under that you have victory, glory, commitment, and under that malchut, and on top is keter, the crown. That's what you're looking at in that picture, whatever that's supposed to mean. And in Kabbalah you have two different ways of drawing that picture. You can draw it in the three lines, or you can draw it like an onion. There's two different ways of looking at the sefirot. One is the encompassing circular, and one is the linear. With all that mumbo-jumbo, let's talk about what we need to understand today. Compassion is very different than kindness. What is the difference in kindness and compassion? And it's not part of our class, so I want to be very brief. Kindness says, I don't want to hear at all if you deserve it or you don't deserve it. I'm going to give this to you. Justice says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, you get what you deserve, not an iota more and not an iota less. Compassion says, let's see what you deserve. This is what you deserve. But we're going to be compassionate and we're going to give you what you don't deserve as well. Thus, the difference in kindness and compassion is that kindness is only about revelation. I don't want to deal at all with what the recipient deserves, is digestible, is not digestible. We're talking only about the giver. 
The, the concept of givura, the left side says, we're talking only about the receiver. What he deserves and what he can digest. Nothing more, nothing less. Compassion says we're going to bring the both together. We're going to give you, but we're going to let you know what you've earned and what you've had through compassion. Now, if you followed what I said, you're now going to realize that the difference in the right and the left is that the right is about the above, the giver. So the right represents from above to below. The left represents, it's all a focus on the recipient and his capacity. Thus, it's all about the below, from below to above. That's the difference between the right side and the left side. It's the difference between giving and withholding. It's the difference between from below to above or from above to below. I want to just make one more concept here. I want to just make something about just for a moment. I want to just get practical, okay? Because this is all do-do-do-do. How does it really make sense in this world? So we're going to talk about rain. Rain? Yeah. There's an interesting teaching in the Talmud that says, if one drop of rain would connect with another drop of rain before it hits the earth, the entire earth would be destroyed. In other words, what's it really saying? The fact that the water leaves the clouds in drops rather than BAM! Imagine one of the good rainstorms that lasts all day and coming down. Imagine all of that came down in one shot. The world would be destroyed. Now let's talk about this. Water is kindness, revelation, sustenance, life force. So it's the right side. However, what makes the water to be a positive, life-sustaining, and not, God forbid, a devastation, is the left side. Because the left side is the one that says, no, 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 no. We got to do this drop by drop. This can't come down on one plug. So it comes out that the left side, in its truth, it's not about not giving, it's about giving in a healthy manner. The left side is not saying no rains. What it's saying is the rain needs to come down in drops. Thus, there's two ways of looking at Giburah for right now. One is Giburah is justice. When there's a drought because we didn't do our mitzvahs and we became immoral and therefore Hashem is not giving us rain. That's one way of experiencing Giburah, strength, justice. But there's a justice which its entire definition is for the sake of kindness and that's raindrops versus bluff okay now let's get to the Kohen and the Levi so what did Korach fight for Korach says no 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 why is Aaron the Kohen why is he the high priest I want to be the high priest that was his fight and that's why what did Moses do what was the final test Moses said do the one thing that only a high priest can do. And what is that? Bringing incense on Yom Kippur. So you'll all bring incense. And the one who is worthy won't die. And the ones who are not worthy will die. Because this is a uh, to be or not to be thing. You don't mess with the incense. And thus we see from here that what was he fighting? He was fighting that, hey, the high priest shouldn't be a Kohen, it should be a Levi. Now we get to what's going on here Kabbalistically. The Kohen's job is to bring the fire from above to below. The Kohen is called in the verse Ish HaChesed in the Zohar. Ish HaChesed, the man of kindness. The Levi on the other hand, his represents strength, strictness, justice, contraction, concealment. Thus what we have over here is the Kohen and the Levi, the Kohen is the right side, the Levi is the left side. By the way, why the Kohen is, is the uh, Isha Chesed, we know. We've, uh, I gave you the example that his job is to bring down the fire from above to below. His job is to bring divinity down. His job is to give the priestly blessing. He's from above to below. What did the Levites do? What did the Levites do in the Mishkan? They played music. 
What is music? From above to below, below to above? From below to above. Thus you understand that they were givura. Now that we understand the Kohen and the Levi, we can understand another thing. Why did the Kohen not have to be shaven and the Levi did have to be shaven? To understand this, we need to talk about one more thing. From chesed, from revelation, you can never have the other side. Klippa, sitra achra, the dark side, you can't have that. Because if you're having a revelation of godliness, you can't have darkness. If you're giving sustenance of light, you're not going to have darkness. However, from the left side, the left side is all about the contraction. Right? If it's about the contraction, it's about minimizing. Now, you and I both understand that in, in, in reality, in our religion, we don't have God and the Satan. There's only one, Hashem Echad. Thus, the Satan is nothing more than a loyal servant of God being sent to test us so that we can grow. Now, everything comes from God. Without God, without life force of infinite light, nothing exists. The worst evil that ever existed, the fact that it existed tells me that in some form or fashion, it had a godly spark in it. Now that godly spark is so dark and so diminished and so everything, but it's got to be there. Because if there was no divinity life force, if it, the life force didn't come somehow from the infinite light, it wouldn't exist. Now how does evil have life force? And the answer is that from the left side, if you keep on making contractions beyond what we need, so we need it to be smaller, smaller, smaller so that we can digest it, right? You're going to try to take a cup of water to drink because you're dehydrated, but you're going to try to take that cup of water straight from the Niagara Falls, what's going to happen? It's not going to work. What you need is that the water should be broken into a big canal, into smaller canals, into smaller pipes, into smaller pipes, until it gets to your sink and you can open it up and nicely fill up an eight ounce cup. That's the healthy part of Tzimtzum. That's the healthy part of the left side. But what happens when the left side doesn't stop? And another contraction, and another concealment, and another contraction, and another concealment. To the point that the minuteness of the light is almost darkness. That's how evil receives its nourishment. It has to be on such an excessive point of contractions and concealments that darkness can digest it without, without being forced to become light. Now, now we're getting to it. Here, what does here represent? What does here represent? Here, Sarot. So we know, according to Kabbalah, here and nails, but tonight we're talking about here. Here could be cut and you have no pain. Right? Kabbalistically that tells us that the amount of contractions there is between your life force and the here is so intense. The here is such a product of contractions to the point of excessiveness that when you cut it, you don't feel pain. That's why a woman's here is called erotic. Why the hairs? Why, they, why is hair called erotic? Erva. Sarotisha erva. Why? Because the hair has such a minimal amount of light to the point where it's almost called darkness. The light itself is almost called darkness. Thus it can manifest itself in the worst level of evil, selfishness, self-centeredness. Thus we now understand why we had to take the Levi's and shave them. Because if Levi's represent contractions, to then have the intense, excessive contractions to the point where it's all about here, we're now 
opening up for evil to nurture. Thus the Levites, not the Kohanim, because the Kohanim themselves weren't contraction. They're the right side, revelation. The Levites represent contractions. So before they can become part of the Holy Temple, a conduit for sustenance to the world, we have to make sure that it's not going to go to the point of excessive contraction and concealment that even the other side can nurture more than they're supposed to. Because when evil prevails, what it simply means is that evil has nurtured from life force. We have fed evil more than they're supposed to have. Because evil is supposed to be weaker than holiness. It's supposed to be like the peel that protects the fruit, not that destroys the fruit. Thus, according to Kabbalah, when we sin, we're taking our holiness, feeding it into the other side. The other side is not supposed to have that amount of holiness. Thus, they become empowered beyond what they're supposed to. And then, Houston, we've got a problem. Thus, what we have over here is a very beautiful concept. Givurah needs to be curbed. If you allow for contractions and concealments to go ad infinim, you're going to get to a point where you're over-nurturing evil now. Thus, we have to be careful that the evil side should not be nurturing from anything from the Holy Temple. The Levites are part of the Holy Temple. The Holy Temple is this life force sustenance of the universe. Thus, we have to make sure that the Levites, by their installation, would be shaven because they themselves are contraction. We don't need them to have excessive contraction, which means here. Okay? Obviously, when we look at things Kabbalistic, everything is a representation. Okay, so we're talking about this as a representation, what the Levite is and what the Kohen is. However, when Mashiach comes, the holy Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist, says on a verse in Ezekiel, in Yecheskel, the Pasuk says, the Kohens, the Levites. He says, well, well, what do you mean the Kohens, the Levites? It should have said the Kohens and the Levites. It says, no, the Kohens, the Levites. From here we learn out that when Mashiach comes, it's going to twist. It's going to flip over. Today the Kohen is the dominant one because we need to have revelation. And the Levites are subservient. Their job is to be making water like raindrops so that it becomes sustainable, digestible. But it shouldn't be too much because then we're feeding the other side. So the main thing here is revelation. And the contraction is subservient to the revelation. Okay? He said, whoa, 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 when Mashiach comes, the true power is Givurah. So let's do it now. Why do we have to not do it now? Let's now already have the Levites. Thus he said, no, 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 don't make Aaron the right side, the revelation to be the high priest. Let me, the Levi, the power of strength, be. Which leads us to the question. If I'm sharing with you that the right side, the Kohen, Chesed, is revelation. The left side is contraction and concealment. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? When Mashiach comes, we should have what? Revelation, not concealment. When Mashiach comes, there's not going to be no more evil. Let's have it all. That's what the verse says. What does the verse in Isaiah say? Your teacher will not cover himself no more. Teacher, capital T. And your eyes will see your teacher. It won't be no more concealment. Today we see God through his works, but we don't see God. When Mashiach comes, we'll be able to see God. So if so, when Mashiach comes, it should be really the right side, not the left side. So what is Rabbi Isaac Luria telling us from the verse in Ezekiel that when Mashiach comes, it's going to be all about the left side, not the right side. By the way, nothing to do with this class. But you know that today, who do we follow? Hillel, right? We follow always Hillel. When Mashiach comes, we're going to follow Shammai. For the same reason. Hillel is revelation and kindness and all that. Shammai is strictness and justice. 
So when Mashiach comes, here's another thing. What do you say in the Midah? Baruch Hashem Magen Avraham. Avraham is kindness. We're taught that when Mashiach comes, we're going to say to Yitzchak, Ata Avinu, you're our father. What do you mean? What happened to Avraham? Avraham is what kept us alive during the exile when we needed kindness. But when Mashiach comes and we'll be able to live up to justice and strictness, we'll say Yitzchak, Shammai, Levi'im. But that's a problem. I get it. So now we need God's kindness. Because if not for God's kindness, who can stand up to face His justice? And Mashiach comes, we'll be able to stand up to face His justice because we will then be the perfect creature as God created us to be. I understand that. But on a deeper mystical level, if Mashiach is all about the ultimate revelation, then how can you tell me that that's the time when the Levites are going to be in charge? Gibura, the left side. It should be the right side. Question makes sense? For this, we need to understand the two sides of Givura. And let me ask you a simple question. Why do we call it Chesed kindness? What should have been the other side? Not Givura strength. It should have been strictness, justice. <coughs> Why do we call it strength, Givura? And the answer is, it takes much more strength to withhold than to shine. Especially when what you're trying to withhold is the infinite light. So if the infinite light is powerful, can you imagine what it takes to hold back the infinite light? It takes powerful plus. Thus we say that the power of constraint is more powerful than the power of giving. As parents, we all know that. You're biting your lip because you want to give your child. And you want to spear your child from the consequences of his actions. And it's so hard not to. It's easier to give than not to give. It takes more strength to not give. So the power of withholding is the true definition of strength. While the power of giving is not as powerful. Aha. That's one side of the coin. Let's talk about the other side of the coin. I told you about the raindrops, right? So the strength it takes to withhold that the cloud shouldn't come gushing down in one gush, but it should be drops, is very powerful. Let me ask you a different side of Givura. What is a tsunami? What is a tsunami? What is a hurricane? What is a tornado? When you see that, what bracha do you make? Koach gvurato, the strength of God. That means the strength of God can manifest itself in two sides of one coin. On the one hand, the definition of strength is, I'm going to hold back the infinite light from shining. The other definition of strength is, that not only am I going to shine, you're going to end up with a tsunami. You're going to end up seeing the great power. Now we understand why when Mashiach comes, there's going to be gvura. Not the gvura of raindrops. The gvura of a tsunami, only that we will then be capable of absorbing a tsunami in a healthy way. When Mashiach comes, not only will we be able to see the light of God, but we will be able to be see, as Isaiah said, our teacher himself. The essence. Thus, when Mashiach comes, you're talking about the ultimate givura. Now we understand that there's two sides of this coin of givura. One side is shave off the hair. Got to be careful. Don't go too far with the contractions. Because then you've, you've diminished the light to such a point that now you could be feeding the other side, the bottom feeders, the klipa, the evil. The other side of givura is a tsunami. Not only are you going to have chesed revelation, but you will be able to see your teacher, capital T, himself. Chesed is saying infinite light. It's not saying the teacher himself. Givura says no, the teacher himself. So we have two sides of Givura. When Mashiach comes, 
We're going to have Gvura in the most healthiest way. It won't be enough to have kindness and revelation because that's a finite revelation compared to the powerful tsunami revelation of Givura. Okay? So far, we're doing fine. Oof, now that we understand the two sides, <laughs> now that we understand the two sides of this, I want to share with you something. I was at a Fabrengan. Oh, I'm talking about the Rebbe, blessed memory. Yeah. So what happened was, I don't remember what year it was, but at that point the Rebbe was editing, he was checking over the discourses and giving them out to print. So he was giving out a mimer that he checked over and edited. So they would take a mimer that the Rebbe said years ago, they would prepare it for print with footnotes, it would go back and forth to the Rebbe, they would send it to the Rebbe, they would make corrections, they would send it back and the back, until finally the Rebbe would cross out, okay, you can put this, you can put this in my name that it was edited. So I remember that they, they gave out a mimer. That means the Rebbe let it through. By Shabbos, I'm sitting by the Fabrengi and I hear the Rebbe saying this. They put in the mimer a footnote, which seemingly is wrong. The Rebbe let it through, so it's not wrong. The Rebbe doesn't let through wrong things. But the Rebbe wanted it to go through, and then he wanted to question it, so that we can understand what's going on. What was it all about? It says, when Mashiach comes, Tzimtzum Atzmoi Yoir. The contraction itself won't be withholding light, it'll be shining light. The Rebbe asked a question. Tzimtzum is a verb, not a noun. If you want to say darkness is a noun, that which is today darkness will change. The darkness will be light. That thing called darkness, right? Darkness is not just the absence of light. The verse says, or He formed light and he created darkness. Darkness is a something, black matter. You should know that black matter is going to turn into white matter. Whatever that means. Darkness will become light. That makes sense. A noun can change its properties. But a verb, if contraction is an action, by definition, what is that action? Withholding, contracting. So how can you say that contraction will illuminate? If it illuminates, it's not contraction. The Rebbe said then, I'll share with you the words, I didn't put it in the notes. The Rebbe said, I have no complaints at the person, he was talking about Rabbi Yochan, you should live and be well. I have no complaints, Rabbi Yochan, I have no complaints at the person who put this in because I don't understand it, so how can I expect him? What can I expect from him, what I don't have? What, what it means that Rebbe doesn't understand is, is, a, is a thing for itself. I want to talk about this one thing. You now have an understanding of what in general it means. The Rebbe's question is a question. But I want to just share in general. What does it mean in Kabbalah when it says that when Mashiach comes, contraction will illuminate? If by that, contraction is all about concealment. Now we understand. It's the other side of the coin of Giburah. The two sides of the coin are one and the same. The strength of contracting is the exact strength of tsunami. Thus, when the Zohar and the Kabbalah says that Simtsum Atzma Yoir, wherever that quote from, I don't really know where the quote is, I'm sorry, I didn't look it up. But wherever that quote comes from, Simtsum Atzma Yoir, what it was saying is that now we experience Gibura, strictness, strength, as contraction. When Mashiach comes, we're going to have the other side of the coin, which is tsunami. Thus, Simtsum Atzma Yoir. The contraction itself will be the most mightiest force of illumination. Okay? This is all a bunch of Kabbalistic stuff and we're going to make it practical in a moment. But there's one more topic I have to still answer. What was Korach's argument? What was his mistake? Korach's mistake was very interesting. To understand Korach's mistake, I need to first ask a question. Korach says we need to have strength and not kindness. 
because strength is greater than kindness. Right? He said, the high priest, the ultimate conduit through which divinity will sustain the world has to be a Levi, left side, not a Kohen, right side. Right? Uh, by the way, already in your mind you can be playing this all out. If you're a parent or if you have any human relationship, you can already see where this is going. You know, this, what do we do? It's kindness, it's justice, and where's the balance? The parent that's always strict is going to destroy the child. The parent that's always kind is going to create an animal. You can see already, but let's put this on hold for a moment. Let's talk about here. We have here two concepts. We have the power of saying we need to shave the hair. Contraction needs to have a stopping point. You just can't keep on contracting, contracting, contracting because then you're going to be feeding the sewer rats. You got to come to a point where you stop. Thus, in the mundane, we need to have the stop. However, in holiness, look at the words that Korach used against Moses. Korach didn't fight just against the high priest. Korach attacked Moses for being a king. The words he used is, nasu al ha'am. Why are you making yourself exalted over the people? Kulanu kidoshim. We are all holy. We don't need to have tzimtzum in holiness. Will you want to tell me we need tzimtzum when it comes to feeding the world, the mundane? I get it. But why do we need to have it when we come to holiness? If we're all holy, and God said, he didn't say, make me a holy house and I'll rest in Moses and Moses will give you. He said, I'm going to rest in each and every one of you. Thus, his question was, why do we need any leadership amongst ourselves? Why are you, Moses, Rabbeinu, any more special? Why are you behaving as if you belong here? God's here, you're here, and we're here. We're all here. Lamatis Nasu. Thus he questioned. You want to tell me that a white garment, i.e., you want to tell me that which is not holy, has to be spoon-fed? I get it. I get why the white sits it has to have a blue thread. But if the garment is Kulanu Kidoshim, the whole garment is blue wool, i.e., the whole garment is holy. Why do we need tzitzis? We don't need you as a king amongst us. You need to be a king between us and the rest, but not over us. Thus you understand that Korach's mistake was exactly that he didn't have the healthy balance between caviar and marmalade. He didn't have the healthy balance when you need to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You need blue strings, even if it's all blue. And he didn't have the balance to say, yeah, we need to shave our hair, because if not, we're going to be feeding the bottom feeders. And then we're going to disrupt the way the global balance should be between the fruit and the peel. Korach botched up. Korach botched up because he didn't understand the balance between the caviar and the marmalade. He didn't understand the balance of glory needs to be withheld. And then there's the side of the shaving. He didn't understand that today Mashiach is not here. Today there's a lot of evil in the world. And you got to be careful how you deal with them. And on the other hand, he didn't understand that the Jewish people need a Rebbe. It's all wonderful, Kolano Kidoshim, but we need Moshe. Now let's talk a little bit about what's happening this Shabbat. We need to understand why Korach made the mistake. To understand why Korach made the mistake, I want to just close, wrap it up. But we'll talk about the closing in a moment, very short. But I want to wrap it up with a very practical thing. Remember I told you there's two sides of strength? 
right? The emanation of strength has contraction and tsunami. There's another emanation that's related very closely to the left side, which is the same thing. And which is that? The tenth emanation, which is kingship. So it's very interesting. We don't make up stuff and talk about our Rebbe's things that because we, we don't know what we're talking about. But if the Rebbe tells us something, we can understand it. The Rebbe told us that his six predecessors were the six male emotions, starting from kindness, strictness, all the way down to Yisod, commitment foundation. The Rebbe is Rebbe number seven. If the Rebbe is number seven, he's the seventh emotion, according to what he taught us. What is the seventh emotion? Feminine mystique, kingship. What is kingship? Kingship is just like givurah. I mean, when you think of king, what do you think of? Revelation, or you think of justice and might? You think of justice and might. So the king is actually related to the left side. Now, something about a king is just mind-boggling. On one hand, the king must be the most humble of all. On the other hand, the king must embrace being exalted above all subjects. If you look in the Torah, you're going to find amazing contradictions. The three mitzvahs that we have straight in Deuteronomy is, he shouldn't have a lot of wives, shouldn't have a lot of horses, shouldn't have a lot of private money. What does that spell out? Humility. On the other hand, you have so many laws. Do you know that a king is not allowed to call someone by his first name? Because calling him by his first name is kind of like buddy-buddy. There's no buddy-buddies with the king. The king calls by the last name. It creates a distance. In those days, they didn't have a last name, but it's the point. A king has to not do certain things in front of other people. For example, the Rebbe asked a question. Who's supposed to give a king a haircut? Because no one's supposed to see the king in that position of taking a haircut. The king has to behave in such a way that he places an awe of exaltedness upon everyone. But on the other hand, the king has to be the most humble of all. King David, how long did he live? 70 years. He was supposed to be born a stillborn. Adam was supposed to live a thousand years because that's considered one day by God. He only lived till 930 because he gave 70 away to King David, right? Adam, his name, stands for Adam, David, Mashiach. So he gave life to Adam. Why? Because kingship is like the moon. The whole power that the moon has to, to illuminate the night is the fact that he's willing to not have any light and reflect the light which is greater than him. Let me ask you a simple question. How is it possible that in the human race there should be such a thing as a king? A mortal human being full of fragility. What kind of king are you? And the answer is in Gemara Brachis, the Talmud says, Malchusa de Ara Malchusa de The entire terrestrial concept of kingship is nothing more than a reflection of celestial kingship. Thus, the one thing the king has to have in order to be a king, I'm talking about according to the Torah, is absolute humility. And yet, on the other hand, the king needs to exude absolute exaltedness. How do you do the both? The answer is that these two sides of a coin are mutually inclusive. You cannot be exalted if you're not, if you're not absolutely humble. You can't be humble if you're filled with insecurities. Thus we now understand what, what Korach did wrong. Korah couldn't balance the two sides of Givurah and to understand that right now Givurah has to be subservient to revelation because he didn't have humility. And without humility, you don't have balance. You don't know when caviar and when marmalade. And with that, I want to finish up with the quote I took to you from that actor-producer called Joel, I'm sorry, Noel Pierce Coward. Wit ought to be a glorious treat like caviar, never spread it like marmalade. It's very simple. Why are you using your wit? 
If you're using your wit because you want to show everyone how witty you are, then you'll always use your wit. You won't know when to stop. But if you're using your wit for the pleasure of the audience, you'll know when it's time to be witty and when it's not time to be witty. Because you're focusing not on yourself, you're focusing on the other. Thus, the only way to have a balance, to know when to be caviar and when to be marmalade, when to be all out at all costs, and when to be, whoa, humility. It's the humility that tells us when to act with revelation and when to act with concealment. That's what Korach was missing. He just didn't get it. He wanted both ends of Gevura in the wrong way. He didn't know when it was time to shave the, head, the hair and when it was time to be tsunami. For that you need to be humility and ultimately it works out as this. The definition of humility. I'm going to talk about the opposite definition of humility. The opposite definition of humility is when a person says, I'm the piece of garbage around which the entire universe evolves. That's, that's, the, that's the ridiculous insanity. The insecurity, I feel like garbage, but I really feel that the whole world evolves around me. Another way of saying it is, I'm not much, but I'm all that I think about. The opposite of that is to be, I'm not a piece of garbage, I'm a divine being, and the universe does not evolve around me, it evolves around us. When you have that paradigm shift, you automatically know without being egocentric, self-centered, what is the best for the situation right now? Caviar or marmalade? Thank you. <laughs>